Hey friends, welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. We believe that you were made for God's mission. We encourage you to check out our website, highlandcc.org, where you can learn more about what you are called to in Christ Jesus. Let's hear a message today that we hope will challenge, encourage you, and ultimately help you to grow and identify your purpose in the plan of God. My youngest son, he's three, and uh, his name's Deacon. His favorite thing to do in the world is to what he calls get bad guys. And what he means by that is every day when I come home from work, he meets me at the door and he grabs me by the hand. So before I even kiss Lindsay on the cheek or set my stuff down, he grabs me on the hand, by the hand, he starts dragging me upstairs and he says, Daddy, let's go get bad guys. And what he wants to do and what we do pretty much every day when I get home is we go upstairs and we get some Nerf guns and we go around the upstairs shooting at invisible bad guys in every room upstairs, okay? And he loves this. I mean, he just, he could do it for hours on end, just shoot at these invisible bad guys, roll around between, you know, behind the dresser and the chair. He just loves it. But I mean, I'm 34 and I get a little bored of shooting invisible bad guys. And so, you know, 20, 25 minutes in, the same thing always happens. Eventually I look at him and I, I point that Nerf blaster at him. And I say, Deacon, you better run. And he looks at me just horrified. Every day he's surprised that this happened. Hor- Daddy, I'm a good guy, he says. And I say, eh, you look a little bad to me. Right. And he runs down the hall while I'm shooting these Nerf darts at him, just screaming the whole way, I'm a good guy. <laughs> um, this is not a sermon about father wounds and uh, the betrayals of our of our dads. How many of you have had that experience of thinking you're the good guy? And then suddenly you're apparently the bad guy? And you didn't see that coming? If you're a believer in this story of the good news, if you're a Christian, if you've given your life to this man, Jesus Christ, you might know what I'm talking about. For centuries, Christians have have kind of been the good guys. Now, Christians have done some terrible things. I don't want to diminish that. But on the whole, Christians and their values and their morals have been seen as mostly good. And even those who disagreed with our beliefs saw Christians as good people whose whose way of life was good and moral and respectable, right? But it doesn't always feel that way these days. Christians are labeled all kinds of things these days. Oppressive, repressive, bigoted, racist, hateful. When did that happen? You ever feel that way? Now there's, you know, listen, this is not a woe is me sermon. Christians have it so hard. The the changing cultural perception of Christians, the criticism that we often receive does not equal persecution, at least in the historical sense, okay? We, We don't have it as bad as Christians in some places in the world have had it in history or have it today. And there's also a benefit to this kind of criticism where we see the way that sometimes Christians, myself included, have failed to live up to the values we preach and profess. 
And to that extent, that criticism is helpful. It helps us to repent and change course and live out what we're preaching. But there's this other element of this. You know, it's, it's not just bad Christians who are being counted as bad people. It's Christianity's values and morals themselves that are by many seen as oppressive and therefore immoral. Are you with me? <clears throat> and so I, I, I met with a sister a couple weeks ago and this is what she said to me. She said, Eric, if this is such good news, why do so many people think it's so bad? Now we could talk about that shift and when our culture began to see Christians differently and what caused that shift. And maybe we'll talk about that in the future. There's a lot of contributors to it, but without a doubt, one of those contributors has been over the last 50 years, changing cultural perceptions on gender and sexuality. And as cultural perceptions around those issues have changed, Christianity's traditional values on those things are seen as oppressive and therefore immoral. Okay. <clears throat> We're not gonna get into that today, but I want us to think together about the logic here. This is, I think this is the most important thing for you to consider as a Christian in our time today. Okay. That as, as a defender of the faith, and that's what each of you are, you used to be responsible for defending whether Christianity was believable, whether it's true or not. And now, this is the shift, now you're responsible for communicating whether it's good or not, whether it's moral, whether it's good for the world or not. So to do that, I think you've got to be able to do two things clearly. I think this is the most important thing that Christians have to be able to do right now. And the first is you've got to be able to see the world clearly. And secondly, you've got to be able to see Jesus clearly. And that brings us to the cross, Mark 15. Let me set this up. Mark 14 ends with Jesus betrayed and arrested by the people closest to him. And Mark 15 starts with a sham trial before this guy, Pilate, okay? And Pilate <clears throat> asked Jesus in Mark 15, verse two, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, just one line, that's what you say. And then he refuses to defend himself anymore, any more than this. Um, Pilate asks him more questions. Jesus won't answer him. And we're told that Pilate marvels at Jesus because he's not trying to defend himself. And then jump down to verse eight. The crowd pushes forward. You know, they're pushing forward into this scene, this trial, a crowd. Notice we're not dealing in individuals anymore. It's not just Judas who's betraying Jesus or Peter who's failing to represent him. Now we're talking about masses of people, a group, group of people. They've totally lost their individuality. And at this point, they're just a crowd. And Pilate asks the crowd, he says, do you want me to give you Jesus? Like they, there's this custom of releasing a prisoner at this time of year. He says, do you want me to turn over Jesus to you? And they say, no, don't give us Jesus. Who do we want? We want Barabbas to be released, who is a violent criminal, known as a violent criminal. It makes no sense. 
But Mark tells us the crowd and the chief priests are full of jealousy. This unholy emotion is motivating them. So Pilate replied, verse 12, Pilate replied, then what do you want me to do with the one they call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What wrong has he done? And they shouted even louder, crucify him. Do you remember that book, 1984 by George Orwell? How many of you had to read that high school? Yeah. 1984 is this story about the future, which is odd because it's 1984. It was written a long time ago. It's now in our past. And it's in the future where the government listens and watches everything that their people say and do. It's kind of like Alexa, okay? (laughs) And um, the government wants to control what people say and do. And so the way that they do this is through what George Orwell called doublethink. You remember this? And doublethink is when you get groups of people to simultaneously accept two contradictory things as true. And so in the book, people walk around chanting things like, war is peace, Um, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. And then most famously, remember, two plus two equals five. Two plus two equals five. And so in this future dystopia, truth is totally lost, but no one is bothered by it. No one is bothered when they walk around saying two plus two is five because everyone around them is saying the same thing, right? So it validates what they're saying. So Orwell wrote this book and he coined this term, double think. Two years later, psychologists based on 1984 came up with the term we still use today called group think, group think. Where we believe what we believe, do what we do, say what we say, because everyone else around us is saying it, doesn't matter what's true, right? Now look again at this scene with me at the trial of Jesus. This crowd, a group, full of an unholy emotion, jealousy, has lost any concern for what's true. Pilate, who is not a good guy for the record, Pilate, who is not a good guy, tries to stop them. They shout, crucify him. And he says, why? What wrong has this guy done? In other words, the charges against him are not true. This is one of the good guys. And what are we told? They just shout louder. Crucify him, they say. It's it's groupthink 101. So uh, Mark isn't, he's not a sociologist. You know, um, his, his primary point is not to describe the way our world works, it's to talk about Jesus. But I think you're going to struggle to find a better chapter in Scripture that more accurately reflects the world that we live in. Christopher Hitchens is a famous atheist, and he, he pretty famously slammed Christianity for being immoral. And this is why he said that Christians, those who have faith, have to abandon the pursuit of truth. To be a Christian, you have to be somebody who doesn't actually care about what's true. And I think if Mark were talking to Hitchens, he would say, really? Like the non-Christians, the non-Jesus people in this story, those are the people who care about pursuing truth? Really? Hitchens, he went on to slam Christianity 
as immoral also because of their use of scripture for guidance and instruction and morality. And what he said is that we all have integrity innately, that we are born instinctively with the ability to discern what's right from wrong. What he actually said was one must repudiate the claim that one doesn't have moral discrimination innately. And I think Mark would say, really? Are you talking about the crowd shouting crucify him? About an innocent man? Are you talking about the soldiers that humiliated and tortured a guy while he was bound? Are you talking about the people who insulted him as he hangs on a cross dying naked? Are you talking about the people making fun of him among themselves? Verse 31, are you talking about the people that executed this innocent guy beside two outlaws in 1527? Which of these people in this story innately knew right from wrong? You know, who are the people in this story that just, just had that instinct? They just knew right from wrong and were gonna act on it. Really? I think Mark would say, we don't. We don't know right from wrong. And then you bring a bunch of people together who do not know right from wrong and you get them into a group with other people who also don't know right from wrong and it turns out their calculus does not improve. You know, that group just grows large enough, it becomes a culture where everyone starts saying and believing and doing the same thing and they're validated in saying and believing and doing those things because everyone else around them is doing it. And so anybody who teaches a different moral authority than the group is what? Immoral, immoral. So you see our world a little bit more clearly now? And this story is helpful, it's helpful. Okay, so then you gotta ask yourself, you know, and the morality of our time is group-based, it's group-think, it's the, 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 um, the result of group-think. What is the moral north star of our time? What is the thing that binds all these people together and motivates them? And I think this story is helpful in that regard too. Look with me in verse 29. People come by Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. They come by in groups, we're told, and this is what the groups say to him, they, we're told. Ha, so you were gonna destroy the temple and you were gonna rebuild it in three days, were you? Save yourself. And come down from the cross. Verse 31, look at this. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross and then we'll see and believe. What are they telling Jesus to do? Save yourself. And if you save yourself, we will find that compelling. Somebody who protects himself, saves himself, that's moral. And we'll believe in that. What a window into our world. Think about that. Where the highest moral value of our time is you do you. You be who you wanna be. You do what you want to do. And anybody who tries to stop you from doing that is oppressing you and therefore immoral. 
So morality in that equation is what? Self-protection. The self. That's the center of the moral universe of our time. You need a bunch of people together, they turn into a culture saying the same thing. This is what's good. You look out for you and anything else is bad. And we believe that until the consequences of that show up. I mean, how many of you follow football a little bit? Maybe you saw a couple weeks ago, the whole Aaron Rodgers debacle. Um, he lied about being vaccinated for COVID-19, like he was required to, to be part of the NFL in certain ways. He lied about it. He said it wasn't the right thing for him. He said he was allergic to something in the vaccine, something like that. He lies about it. He gets sick with COVID. He misses a game and poetically, thank you, universe. I thank the Lord for that. I don't think that's fair. Thank you, universe. They lost the game that he was out. Man, you should have seen the media pundits just roasting this guy. How could he be so selfish? How could he do this to his team? Yeah, and I think he was selfish, but for the world to criticize him for doing exactly what the world tells you to do, you do what's best for you. Well, then there's consequences. You know, or maybe you followed weeks ago the concert where masses of people smothered to death. People at this concert. Every person in that crowd pressing forward because they want the best experience of that concert for themselves they can get, no matter the cost. And what we know at that moment is if every single person in that crowd had been simultaneously convicted, it's not worth it. My experience, me, of this concert is not worth it. And everybody had stopped, lives would have been saved. And yet they're doing exactly what the world tells them to do. You look out for you. You do what's best for you. Like that is the moral authority of our time. And when we actually see it for what it is, we see how thin that moral fabric is, how easily it tears and comes apart and we're left holding pretty much nothing, right? And then you have this, this story of the cross the North Star or the center of our faith, which is a story about the polar opposite of what the world is preaching, about a man who sacrifices himself for everybody else, right? Look at this. Jesus refuses to defend himself from the beginning, from his arrest. Pilate marvels at it, we're told, because he won't defend himself. It's a sham trial. He's tortured, humiliated, even to his death. He will not defend himself. It's the polar opposite of self-preservation. And he's not doing it for good people. Paul says, while we were still weak at the right moment, Christ died for ungodly people. He's dying for all these people around him in this scene, shouting, crucify him. All these people who think they're in the right, all these people who think they, good, they are good, but who we know would save themselves in a moment's notice, right? And he's dying for those people. But then look at this, verse 39, most important verse, I think, in the whole chapter. When the centurion who stood facing Jesus against Jesus, this was a person who was antagonistic to Jesus. When the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw how he died, he said, ah, this man was certainly God's son. When he saw how he died, then he believed. 
Everybody watching Jesus die that day said if he would save himself, then they would believe. I don't think they would have. Because everybody saves themselves. It's not that compelling. Everybody does that. We see that. That's the, the moral voice, the moral preaching of our time. Save yourself. Everybody does it. And when we see it, it's actually not that compelling. And we see it's pretty morally hollow in that moment. But when we see somebody who gives themselves for others, man, that touches us in a much deeper place. Like we, like we know in that moment, we're, we're catching this glimpse of a higher moral authority, something that is better or more good than anything this world's preaching. We see it, we see it all over the place. We see it in fiction. A couple of years ago, some friends of ours here took Lindsay and I to see Les Miserables at the Orpheum. How many of you have read or seen Les Miserables before? Uh, it's the story of Jean Valjean. He's a, he's a convicted criminal, spends 19 years in a prison camp, and he gets out, he has nothing, and he finds himself on the, on the front porch of a church, homeless. Priest takes him in, feeds him. And that night, Valjean steals all of his silver and makes off. The next morning, he's caught by the police, and the police drag Jean Valjean in with all this silver that they know isn't his and belongs to the priest, and they throw him at the feet of the priest, and they say, he had the nerve to say you gave him this. Remember what the priest says? He said, that's right. And then he goes to the table, and he takes the silver candlesticks, and the nuns are like, no, 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 no. He takes the silver candlesticks, and he says, that's right, but my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind, he says. Would you, you forgot I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? He said. Right. <clears throat> Here's the story of this guy sacrificing himself for somebody who doesn't deserve it. You know that story was written in 1845, almost 200 years ago, and we're still going to see the musical. Lindsay and I watch The Office a lot at night, and we're putting our kids down. You can raise your hand if you do, too. You don't have to, you're embarrassed, it's good. I don't think people are gonna be talking about the office in 200 years. What is it about that story that touches us in a much deeper place? You see it in the news, you remember that story of those um, boys, that soccer team, 12 boys trapped in a cave in Thailand a couple of years ago. Trapped in that cave for 10 plus days and the best cave divers and military people from all over the world descend on this cave to try to rescue these boys, dive in there at risk of their own life. And one of them gave his own life. You remember that? Died in the cave trying to save these boys. You remember that? Do you remember how often you were checking the news every day to find out what the update was? Why did that story grab us? Here are these people sacrificing themselves for kids, boys, they don't even know. Boys who don't deserve it touches us in a deeper place, doesn't it? And when you see it, that self-sacrifice, which is the center of our faith, you realize this is more moral, more good than anything else I see out here. Anything else this world is telling me. You know, I don't just see it in fiction or see it in the news. I see it in you all. There's this, this young woman here, L lives alone, and she's had some health issues in the last couple of weeks, a surgery, some other issues. You know who's been driving her to all of her appointments? A couple of ladies from this church, giving up their time, 
time with their kids, their families, cooking for family and stuff. Instead, they're cooking for her. You know, nobody's going to write a musical about those ladies. It's probably not going to be in the news tonight. But tell me who would see that and not say that is good. We're going to honor Alan Hewitt here in just a moment. Alan Hewitt retired the first time, and he had all these big plans of playing golf. The church came to him like the church is bound to do and said, instead of playing golf, would you give the next 15 years of your life to building up this church? That sounds awesome. <laughs> and he did it, sacrificed his retirement so he could build this church. Nobody's going to write a musical about Alan Hewitt. And if they did, he would not go to it. He is not a musical guy. <laughs> but who would see that and not say, that is good? Christianity is about Jesus Christ. And we see Jesus most clearly at the cross. When a man gives himself for you and me who did not deserve it, and when we see that, what we know is that this is better than anything else out there. And that I can give myself to this man because he's the good guy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have done in Jesus Christ for us. We thank you that he sacrificed himself for us when we were ungodly people. God, so we believe that this man is worth giving our whole selves to. As we take his body and blood into ours, would you fill us with the grace and courage, the mercy and power to live and to give of ourselves as he did. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.